We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 582 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, May 29th, 2023. It is Memorial Day 2023. A salute and thank you to all of those who have lost their lives fighting for our country. Hope that you're having a nice Memorial Day weekend. As yes, there is a show for Memorial Day. You are listening to that show right now. And uh, coming up on this show, next segment, in fact, An excellent guest, a memorable guest for Memorial Day, Howard Gutman, the former United States ambassador to Belgium, a high-level attorney, a man who is extremely well-connected, a man who is very familiar with all that is going on with the Josh Harris group. Uh, Howard knows multiple people in the group, and he is going to explain to us what the heck is happening in the Harris group's purchase of the commanders. Uh, The Harris Group's purchase of the team is going to get approved by NFL owners. Of that, there is little doubt. But there continues to be a lot out there about the financial structure of the purchase. We, over the last few days, have had multiple reports in that regard. And NFL owners actually voting on the purchase appears to be weeks away, as in July or even August. Why is that? Uh, Howard Gutman has a great understanding of what's happening here. He's going to spend some time with us uh, breaking down the inner workings of the Harris Group's purchase of the Commanders, uh, why the NFL owners taking their time to approve the sale could be costly, uh, where the Harris Group is at in terms of a new stadium and in terms of the name of the team, uh, and a lot more. If you want to truly comprehend what's going on in the sale of the Commanders, do not miss the ambassador, Howard Gutman. Next segment, uh, also on the show, we'll discuss the Nationals winning two of three games at the Kansas City Royals, including an absolute gem from starting pitcher Mackenzie Gore on Sunday afternoon in what was, yes, a loss, uh, a 3-2 walk-off loss. Uh, but I'll also get into another major development for the Nats on Sunday, the promotion of their top prospect, outfielder James Wood, to A Harrisburg. Uh, the Nats and James Wood may have a superstar. Uh, he is climbing the Nats organizational ladder, and he conceivably could make his major league debut this season. If you are a Nats fan, uh, you should be excited 
Uh, and I'll talk Orioles. Uh, my thoughts on them losing two or three games to the American League West leading Texas Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. A series that included more good starting pitching from Kyle Bradish and Dean Kramer and more good hitting from left fielder Austin Hayes. What a season he's having. But the uh, series also included another blow-up start by Grayson Rodriguez, who has been sent back to AAA Norfolk. A uh, disappointing but perhaps a necessary development. Uh, hey, congrats to Maryland baseball. Uh, it won the Big Ten tournament, a 4 nothing win over Iowa at uh, Charles Schwab Field in Omaha, Nebraska on Sunday afternoon. First ever conference tournament championship for Maryland baseball in either the ACC or Big Ten. The Terrapins, they are the number 23 team in the country and in winning the Big Ten tournament won the uh, conference's automatic bid to the NCAA tournament, for which there is a selection show on Monday at noon. Uh, Monday, of course, a big day in sports. Eastern Conference Finals Game 7 on Monday night in the NBA playoffs. The Miami Heat at the Boston Celtics Monday night at 8.30. The eight-seeded Heat held a 3-0 lead in the series. The eight-seeded Heat has choked away that 3-0 lead. The two-seeded Celtics, the fourth team in NBA postseason history to force a Game 7 in a series in which the team trailed 3-0. But as you probably know, each of those previous three teams lost the Game 7. Although, the Celtics are the first of the four teams to host the Game 7. Uh, the other three teams, in case you're curious, the 2002-2003 Portland Trailblazers, the 1993-1994 Denver Nuggets, and the 1950-1951 New York Knicks. What is going to happen on Monday night. This is what you call a big spot. Maybe one day our NBA team, the Wizards, will be in such a spot uh, deep into the NBA postseason. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Dave in Elkton, Maryland on the Chase Young topic. <laughs> uh, him not attending last week's Commander's OTA practices, of which there were three. By the way, another three Commander's OTA practices this week, Tuesday through Thursday, May 30th through June 1st. Writes Dave, listening to the show, I am reminded of Allen Iverson's practice mantra. Chase Young not attending OTAs won't matter to anyone if Chase shows up for the games and plays like we want him to play. If Ron Rivera isn't concerned and Jack Del Rio isn't concerned, then I'm inclined not to care. This will come down to play. I actually think that Young will have a great year. And then the conversation will be who will need to be sacrificed for the money. Uh, all of that said, it would be better for the fans' confidence in the team if Young showed up. It looks bad that the two defensive guys who we need to have great seasons, Chase Young and Montez Sweat, are missing OTAs. Does it give you a warm and fuzzy feeling about the prevailing attitude? And if the defense does get off to a slow start, then the OTA absences will look really bad. Both Chase and the team need him to dominate this season. He needs to have a great year or he likely will be relegated to the bust category. Uh, by the way, no one cares about the name. If the team wins, then the name will be fine. If the team is bad, everyone will think that the name is horrible. I don't think that any of the team names matter. If the Wizards were really good, everyone would be saying, great name, but the Wizards aren't really good. And so many are wishing that the team was still the Bullets. Uh, thank you for the email, Dave. Uh, so a few things to unpack from there. 
Uh, when it comes to the commander's head coach, Ron Rivera, acting as if he isn't that bothered by Chase Young not attending the commander's OTA practices last week, it may be that Ron isn't that bothered, but I would suggest this. Given the history here, and that history includes Ron having made it very clear that he wanted Chase and others to attend these OTA practices, I think it's very possible that Ron is angry that Chase is not attending these OTA practices, but didn't want to make a big deal about it publicly. And so that's why Ron sounded the way that he sounded in his uh, pre-OTA practice press conference last Wednesday morning. It is true, though, that if Chase Young this coming season is great, if he this coming season is the dominant edge defender who he was drafted to be, then him not attending some or all of the team's OTA practices this offseason will not be a big deal at all. Uh, I don't think that any reasonable person thinks that Chase not attending these OTA practices like dooms him to failure this coming season. I certainly don't feel that way. The problem that I have with Chase not attending the OTA practices is that he no longer gets the benefit of the doubt regarding not needing to be doing all that he can be doing to be great because he hasn't been great in years now. Uh, Montez Sweat gets a benefit of the doubt. I don't love him not attending the OTA practices, but Montez Sweat last season was one of the best edge defenders in the NFL. Chase Young has not been at that level in multiple seasons now. I don't get why Chase this offseason would not be doing all that he can do to be great this coming season. Heck, Jonathan Allen attends the team's OTA practices. John Allen has been great for multiple seasons now. He, over these last few seasons, has established himself as one of the best interior defensive linemen in the NFL. If John Allen is attending these OTA practices, why isn't Chase Young attending these OTA practices? Uh, Unless Chase has a really good reason for not attending the OTA practices, I don't get him not attending the OTA practices, of which there are a mere seven this offseason. And that's another aspect of all of this. I mean, seven commanders OTA practices this offseason. That's it. Okay. Chase Young, off not having had a good NFL season since his great 2020 rookie season, can't make it a point to in his six and a half month offseason, mid-January to late July, make it to seven OTA practices? Really? And John Allen can make it a point to be at these OTA practices? I don't get that. Uh, Even though, yes, as Georgetown legend Allen Iverson in May 2002 famously said, During his time with the Philadelphia 76ers, we are talking about practice. We sitting here, I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Not a game. Not not the game that I go out there and, and die for and play every game like it's my last. Not the game. We're talking about practice, man. I mean, how silly is that, man? We're talking about practice. I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to lead by example. I know that. And I'm not, I'm not shoving it aside, you know, like it don't mean anything. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we're talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? We're talking about practice, man. We're talking, we're talking about practice. We're talking about practice. We ain't talking about the game. We're talking about practice, man. 
Yes, AI, we are talking about practice. And look, perhaps Chase Young will be in attendance for this week's set of Commander's OTA practices. That is worth considering here. I mean, Chase last offseason did not attend the Commander's first week of OTA practices, but was in attendance during the second and third weeks. Uh, as for the name, I do agree with Dave from this standpoint. I do think that the Commanders being good would make people more accepting of that name, Commanders. Not everyone, but many people. Uh, but I do think that plenty of people care about the name. And when it comes to the Wizards, uh, the team 100% should go back to Bullets. You know, we can debate the Redskins name change. I think that reasonable people can disagree on that. Uh, I have far less tolerance <laughs> for a debate over the Bullets name change. Calling the team the Bullets was never an endorsement of gun violence or anything like that. And no reasonable person ever took that name as an endorsement of gun violence or anything like that. And if you want to play the game of, well, Bullets kill people, then what about the NHL's Carolina Hurricanes? Hurricanes kill people and ravage communities, including those in Carolina. Why don't people have a problem with that team calling itself the Hurricanes? Uh, what about the NHL's Buffalo Sabres? A saber is a type of sword. Swords have killed people. Uh, why don't people have a problem with that team calling itself the Sabres? Uh, Major League Soccer has a team called Chicago Fire FC. The Great Chicago Fire of October 1871 is one of the most famous fires in the history of this country. Approximately 300 people died in the Great Chicago Fire. Why is a team in Chicago named after that fire. And I get it. Chicago Fire FC is named in memory of the fire, not as an endorsement of the fire. But my point is that you can play these little games with a lot of team names and you can find reasons to be offended by plenty of team names. So to me, the Wizards should go back to Bullets. Bullets is a much better name than Wizards. And I think it is so telling that the Wizards for years now have had uniforms very similar to the team's Bullets uniforms. I think that the team internally knows that Bullets is what most fans of the team want. Uh, email from Brian Perry on the Commander's Next Stadium potentially being in Washington, D.C., but not at the RFK Stadium site. Instead, at the Poplar Point site near Nationals Park. Uh, Washington, D.C. on May 15th filed a request for proposals for the Poplar Point site. Uh, the Poplar Point site is about 110 acres and could be better, maybe even a lot better than the RFK Stadium site. Certainly could be easier given that that RFK Stadium land is federally owned uh, and that a good number of residents near RFK Stadium do not want a commander stadium in that area. Uh, although WUSA 9 investigative reporter Eric Flack last September came out with a report that included this, quote, Poplar Point has some challenges too. Although the land is in the process of being transferred from federal control to the D.C. government, there are ongoing environmental investigations related to the cleanup of soil contamination to remove hazardous materials. According to the National Park Service's Poplar Point webpage, those materials may pose unacceptable risk to human health or the environment, and a source close to the stadium project tells WUSA 9 the Poplar Point site remains a long shot due to regulatory and environmental remediation concerns, end quote. Anyway, writes Brian, 
To the environmental issues with Poplar Point, I believe that the RFK side would have slash already has similar issues, and that is why RFK Stadium is being taken down methodically, bolt by bolt. Anything built near water is going to have extra environmental mitigation. If environmental concerns are that serious, we should probably vacate the Navy Yard and JP Anacostia Bowling. You get my point. For the record, Poplar Point would be awesome. Having a stadium district would be awesome. Food trucks that serve adult beverages to keep everyone hydrated uh, on a September Sunday, walking from a 1 p.m. Nationals game to a late window Commanders game. Could I interest you in that? Safety nets under the Frederick Douglass Bridge because we care. Thank you again for your work. Uh, Thank you for that, Brian. Yeah, I am a big fan of the stadium district. Uh, Baltimore has that with uh, Oriole Park at Camden Yards, the Ravens M&T Bank Stadium, and uh, what is known as CFG Bank Arena, all close together. CFG Bank Arena, what was the Baltimore Arena, and what has had about a million name changes in recent years. Uh, But Baltimore has a stadium district. Uh, My wife is from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has a stadium district. Philadelphia has a stadium district. Uh, The Commander's Next Stadium being at Poplar Point would create this like super stadium district with the Commander Stadium, Nationals Park, uh, and Audi Field, and then the Entertainment and Sports Arena, and even Capital One Arena, uh, not that far away. Uh, And yes, a September Sunday with a big Nats home game at 1 p.m. and a big Commander's home game at 4 p.m. would be great. You know, we have only had one year in which both the Nats and the team currently known as the Commanders were good. 2012, uh, when the Nats won the National League East and the Skins won the NFC East. Uh, but remember, the Skins in that 2012 regular season got off to a 3-6 and six start before going on a seven-game winning streak. So it's not like the Skins got off to some hot start that season. Uh, although, with that being uh, the rookie season for quarterback Robert Griffin III, uh, there definitely was excitement for the Skins in September of that year. Uh, A Washington, D.C. September in which both the Nats and Commanders are good would be great, as great as the law firm of Paulson and Nace. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that is always ready to fight for you. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C., in West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace provides a passionate advocacy on behalf of injury victims designed to help them and their families move forward after the most difficult of times. And Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. How about this? Two verdicts against Merrill Dow totaling a hundred. million. Yes, Paulson and Nace has taken on Big Pharma and won. Uh, Clifton versus Georgetown University Hospital, a $50 million verdict for a young mother injured during childbirth. Uh, Just last July, Bradley versus the United States of America. Paulson and Nace won a case for which the United States government must pay nearly $1.8 million. So this to a former American University field hockey player because of a military doctor's failure to diagnose and treat the student for a 2011 concussion that left her with permanent symptoms. Paulson and Nace took on the U.S. government and won. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think 
that you've been wrong but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nason. Schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. Well, we may be in the midst of a holiday weekend, Memorial Day weekend, but that has not stopped there from being quite a bit on the sale of the Commanders in recent days. Uh, And by the way, we over the last few days also have had this more in the saga of Commanders bidder Brian Davis. We on Friday had a hearing for this uh, multi-billion dollar lawsuit that Davis's company, Urban Echo Energy, has filed against Bank of America, which is handling the sale of the commanders. A big thing in this Brian Davis situation has been the source of these billions of dollars that he claims to have. Well, a lawyer representing Bank of America raised the possibility that the documents at the center of Davis's lawsuit against the bank are, quote, fictitious, <laughs> end quote. Yeah. A lawyer for Bank of America at this hearing basically called Brian Davis what a lot of us are thinking he is, a fraud, a con man, a carny. Uh, Know this, this lawsuit originally sought $500 billion in damages. Think about that figure, $500 billion. That sounds like something that you just make up. Uh, I want a bajillion dollars, okay? $500 billion in damages. Uh, The award amount sought was eventually reduced to a much more modest $999,000. If you want more on this Brian Davis mess, uh, check out my conversation with attorney and sports law expert Daniel Wallach on last Tuesday's show, episode 578. Daniel had some really good stuff on this uh, Brian Davis situation, which is so bizarre and so ridiculous. But yeah, what matters the most regarding the sale of the commanders right now is how soon this thing gets finalized. Uh, Indianapolis Colts owner and CEO Jim Irsay last Monday afternoon, May 22nd, uh, in a session with reporters at the NFL's Spring League meeting in Minneapolis, said that the idea is for a special owners meeting after July 4th for a vote of NFL owners on the sale of the commanders. Uh, But Ursay, who was a member of the NFL's finance committee, also said some things that uh, raised some concerns about the sale of the team to the Josh Harris group being approved. Quote, we'll see what happens. I think it's going to depend on the Harris group. They know what the rules are. End quote. Ursay also said, quote, there's certain criteria that has to be met. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's not there yet, but it doesn't mean that it can't get there. And quote, well, NFL and sports business insider Ben Fisher of Sports Business Journal, he in a piece that came out this past Thursday night reported, quote, the Harris Group's current debt-heavy capital structure and complicated membership have a lot of NFLers uncomfortable, and some believe it does not comply with league ownership rules. Harris believes they do comply, but the NFL's concerns are potentially significant sitting at the core of the league's stability above all else approach. There are limits to how hard the NFL can push the Harris group because of a truly rare circumstance. The Shield doesn't hold the best cards in this negotiation. Harris knows the current alternative to a deal with him is to leave Snyder in charge. 
If they want Snyder out, and they do, then they'll probably have to accept something short of ideal. Harris could walk, one insider said, end quote. Now, that said, Fisher also had this in his piece, quote, it remains highly probable that Josh Harris successfully closes his deal to buy the commanders from Dan Snyder for $6.05 billion. All relevant parties are motivated to get it done, and in some ways, it's that simple. Nevertheless, there are some interesting moving pieces here as the NFL Finance Committee gets into the nitty-gritty, end quote. Uh, Speaking of that nitty-gritty, Mike Ozanian, assistant managing editor for Forbes Media, he in a report that came out on Friday morning reported that the Harris Group needs to adjust its financing in this purchase of the commanders. The NFL's current limit for debt tied to the purchase of a team is $1.1 billion per Ozanian. The Harris deal includes $1.1 billion in secured debt and $1 billion in unsecured debt. But there's also this. Sports business insider A.J. Perez of Front Office Sports, he on Friday afternoon reported that, quote, any tweaks to Josh Harris's $6.05 billion agreement to purchase the Washington Commanders aren't likely to derail the timeline for approval. Sources familiar with the process told Front Office Sports, end quote. So the prevailing feeling remains that the sale of the Commanders to the Josh Harris group is going to get done. And remember, Dallas Cowboys owner, president, and general manager Jerry Jones and NFL commissioner Roger Goodell, each guy at that NFL Spring League meeting in Minneapolis said that the expectation is that the Harris Group buying the team will get approved. And Jerry raved about the Harris Group. But all of this said, why is this sale looking like it won't get finalized until well into the summer? You know, it was on May 12th that we had the formal joint announcement from Commander's co-owners and co-CEOs Dan and Tanya Snyder, and from Josh Harris on behalf of the Harris Ownership Group, announcing that the Snyders and the Harris Group had entered into a purchase and sale agreement for the Commanders. Why should the sale, off being announced on May 12th, not get approved until two or even three months later? Think about that. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast, a man who is very familiar with and has a great understanding of the process and procedure of the sale of the commanders. Howard Gutman, the former United States ambassador to Belgium. Uh, he was U.S. ambassador to Belgium from August 2009 to July 2013. He is a 1977 graduate of Columbia University and a 1980 graduate of Harvard Law School. Uh, he has appeared in several movies and television shows. He is the host of the political commentary radio show, As I See It, on News Radio WRVA in Richmond and on the Odyssey app. You can follow him on Twitter at the Howard Gutman. He is a big fan and astute observer of the Commanders. He is a loyal listener of this podcast, and he is here to help us make sense of uh, what exactly is going on with this sale of the Commanders. Ambassador, how are you? I'm doing well, Al. I actually got back last night from Romania, but my luggage is still in Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, where we change planes. Other than not having uh, not having my clothes and my toiletries, I'm doing fabulously. <laughs> well, I know with the way air travel is these days, you're not alone in an adventure like that. So uh, hopefully everything works out soon. So the general sentiment very much is that this sale of the commanders to the Josh Harris group is going to get approved. 
Uh, that said, we do now have beyond-the-record comments from Jim Irsay and recent multiple reports saying that the financial structure of the Harris Group's purchase needs to be altered. And we have what appears to be this likelihood of the sale not being approved until July or even August. Uh, what do you make of what's happening here? So um, we know that the issues between Dan Snyder and the Harris Group are all resolved. The terms, um, Dan obviously... Uh, was trying to get the highest price he could. He held out ultimately for $6 billion. It didn't look like the Harris Group was willing to pay it, so they bridged the gap with this little earnout uh, part. And But all those issues are laid to rest. And I take from the fact that Dan actually signed the agreement, he went to a binding agreement and lost all his leverage against the league, that the issues between the league and Dan are worked out. Uh, so really there's two more things that would need to be done. We now have an ownership group, um, a, a new ownership group of up to 20 people um, who want to join uh, the league. And the league has an important obligation, uh, first, to vet the members. And I can talk a little bit about what vetting would be like. Uh, and then to make sure the financial terms of the deal work consistent with the NFL guidelines. And that um, is an important process. It's going on now. It shouldn't be prejudged, but I don't think that will result perhaps in tweaking, and I can explain that, but it's not going to kill the deal. Uh, we should get back to this late July or early August, because first let's talk about the vetting. There are 18 to 20 names now being presented to the NFL, and the NFL would have major egg on its face, a major problem, if any of those 18 to 20 people were the subject of a Washington Post headline. They don't need a Mark Maskey story and, and, and Nikki Drow's story on the front page that there is a drug dealer or uh, a leading gambler or someone accused of domestic abuse or um, you know, or someone who's when they ran down their Twitter page had offensive tweets. So you kind of know it when you see it, what, what the problem areas are, but they have to vet each of those people. Um, I know a lot of those people, but um, I don't know all of their tweets. Um, we know a few things. We know Josh Harris has already been vetted because um, he's a part owner of the Steelers. So to become a part owner of the Steelers, the NFL, no matter what you're interested in, Tom Brady's being vetted right now for the Raiders. No matter how well they know him, um, they will they will get their former law enforcement group to then interview people who know these people. Um, and the questions will be those kind of topics. They'll check their social media. Um, they'll ask people who know them. Um, questions all trying to get at you know, whatever, whatever could be embarrassing, whether it's drug use or whether it's gambling or whether it's ties to the mob or anything. Uh, and that will take time. Now, I've been vet vetted twice. Uh, in 1985, I became the special assistant to the director of the FBI for counterintelligence. So the highest clearance in the world. And that didn't take five weeks. Um, that took probably a week. Um, to go into my background, I was a vet for U.S. ambassador. That took about four days of getting people to talk to 20 or 30 people, dial for dollars, dial for information, uh, to find out who is this person, what, you, what they're like. And that's going on with the 18 to 20 people. Um, and I would hope that they would clear. We know a bunch about several. We know Josh Harris has been vetted. We know Mitch Rails is the chairman of a publicly traded company and a public figure. If there were that kind of tweet, 
if there were, now I don't think he has a social media presence at all, um, but if there was anything like that, it wouldn't have taken buying the commanders um, to put him in the social, in, in the limelight. Similarly, Eric Schmidt of Google, um, you know, if there was a Me Too problem or a, um, a, a, a you know, misogynist history or a, 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 a racial bias or any of that or a gambling addiction, that would have been in the, in the papers a long time ago. But for some of these people, they are more under the radar. Uh, and the NFL has to do its job. Um, by the way, I think this is a spectacular group from the people I know. Mark Ein is well-known in town. Uh, Mark uh, has his love of tennis uh, and his love of D.C. And so he made the tennis presence in D.C., the team he owns in D.C., the finest team there, so much so that he basically took over the league and he basically took over the D.C. tennis tournament because he believes in excellence uh, and he believes in the city. So he's terrific. Uh, I've met um, with Eric Schmidt twice. Um, uh, once back in 2005 and six, when Mark Warner, now our senator from Virginia and a law school buddy of mine, was running for president. Most of the country didn't realize Mark ran for president because he ultimately never declared. But we went around together and met potential fundraisers, potential influential people. And we spent a day at Google with Eric Schmidt. Um, and Eric Schmidt was a person who saw tomorrow more than yesterday. Um, I remember we were at Google at like 10.30 in the morning and the place was empty. And I'm looking at Mark and Mark's looking at me. Every desk is empty. The pinball machines are empty. Everything's empty. Finally, Mark turns to Eric Schmidt and says, where is everybody? And Eric said, oh, you think I'm running a business? I'm running a graduate program. Huh. They were probably here till three in the morning. So Eric Schmidt gets it. Um, and then... Uh, I brought a trade mission from Belgium when I was ambassador, including the, the Crown Prince of Belgium. Now, the Crown Prince of Belgium probably can operate his phone, but his knowledge of tech would be not more than operating his phone. Uh, and yet he wanted to meet the heads of Google. So I called Eric and asked if he'd do a favor. This is not a guy that they'll have a lot to like talk about, but Eric took... Uh, an hour out of his day to meet with the crown prince and the delegation. So he's a, you know, generous of spirit, um, knows, you know, know, has great judgment, uh, has helped build businesses. Um, so, you know, we've got a core of those people. I've been reading with humor, Alejandro, uh, uh, Santa Domingo, uh, was supposedly this, these Colombian interests. He was born in New York, attended Hotchkiss and Harvard. Uh, that's like calling me Polish. I was born in Queens. Um, but you know, my dad came from Poland. So, um, so he, there's no great Columbia mystery. So this is a pretty impressive, solid group, but it has to be vetted. That's number one. The second thing that goes on is the financing that we've read a lot about. You have some of the best leveraged buyout, not, not some of the best leveraged buyout talent in the history of the world. Um, Josh Harris comes from Apollo. Mitch Rails from Danaher. These are basically businesses or funds that buy other businesses and do it, structure it financially so it is most advantageous to buy it. And the best way to buy something is by borrowing enough on it that it can repay and you get something for free. So if Al Galdi and Howard Gutman actually could get by the commanders, if we could get by that 
billion dollar, that billion dollar requirement to put up the billion. Al, I've got a couple hundred bucks if you've got the rest. <laughs> but if we could get by that part, we could afford the commanders because the business makes hundreds of million dollars a year and it will pay the debt that you have to borrow on the rest. That's a leveraged buyout. The difference is the league wants a certain amount of equity. And so we don't quite fit the equity, but anyone could afford to buy the commanders. So these guys are really good at structuring acquisitions in a way where um, they the financing is most advantageous. And then it depends how you interpret the NFL rules. So the finance committee is reviewing that. Um, we is the sale price five point eight billion, or is it six point oh five billion? If that earnout um, is that earnout. Is that something that you don't count? You just have to figure out, well, we've got a billion of debt on the 5.8, or is that extra 200 million something that Dan Snyder's in effect lent to this group, uh, which they'll pay back with the earnout? So those kind of issues that will that will take some um, some restructuring, some tweaking among the group. But again, I don't see why that would be to August. Um, so we are at the end of May. I would hope this could be done by June 15th. And so I was alarmed in reading A.J. Perez's uh, front office sports, talking about owners, talking about they expected this to be early August. Uh, and that's where I think is the most interesting issue uh, of the difference between this ownership group coming in in mid-June or two months later when the season's starting is a massive difference for this community. And the question is, why would the league um, not have the incentive to move forward? Uh, why would they be, you know, slow rolling it now when it hurts this community? We, you, you heard earlier this week, Ron Rivera said he can't really consider the re-signing of Cameron Curl, the extension and the Montez Sweat extension until the ownership is straightened out. Well, this ownership can't talk to him about those issues until they're approved by the league. So that's signing our players are on hold. The stadium, we had Magic Johnson talk to Wes Moore in Maryland, but that got shut down. They can't talk to people about a new stadium. So we are losing not only two months as a community of having no ownership and a, and a gap, um, but we're losing the two months leading up to the season. So I'm just not sure why the league can't move this along and get the vetting done and the financing done by, let's say, June 15th. And I would hope that the journalist community, whether it's Nikki or Sam Fortier of The Post or Matt Perez of The Times, starts asking the league, why can't they go forward um, once the vetting is done and the finances straightened by mid-June just in getting a Zoom vote? Um, and I think it's pretty important for listeners now to start asking that question because there's a difference of having a team for two months with no ownership leading up to the season. It's a wasted year in those two months. It is odd that the timeline for formal approval of the Harris Group's purchase of the Commanders now goes into July or August. I mean, the formal announcement from the Snyders and Josh Harris announcing the purchase and sale agreement was on May 12th. Why should something that was announced on May 12th take two or three months to finalize. Uh, one of the things that really has been illuminated by what's going on here is, at least to me, 
a need for the NFL to update its rules for buying a team, uh, including this current limit for debt tied to the purchase of a team being $1.1 billion, regardless of the price of the team. Why the debt limit is some arbitrary raw number as opposed to a percentage of price given the skyrocketing valuations of NFL franchises makes no sense to me. Uh, Do you think that the NFL would be willing to adjust its current rules for this Harris Group purchase of the Commanders? Or do you think that any adjustments would be post-purchase and that the Harris Group is going to have to abide by these existing rules? So the change will come after... After this purchase and after Seattle, Bezos can go by Seattle in 2024 and will do so. And then there will be a complete, I suspect, revamp of the rules. This is the only league where a private equity can can own any. Why can't you have 20 percent of corporate or fund money, investor money, um, where you can't have any sovereign wealth money? Um, to, to come in, and so they will not be able to to sell. After the commanders at six billion and whatever Bezos pays for Seattle, um, when when Jerry Jones wants to sell out or Robert Kraft wants to sell out, they're going to need people who have ten billion dollars, and that's going to take a whole different structure. So I expect the financing of a sale to be revamped after the Seattle sale in twenty twenty four. But there's really no reason um, it won't take a waiver of the debt limit. It will just take. Um, Structuring it in a way where you can now say they're within the debt limit. So if you're going to borrow, let's say, say you have known the New Jersey Devils and the 76ers and you have a lot of equity there. Do you need to sell your equity, part of your equity in the team to get cash to make it equity? Or can you borrow against them um, to put to have money of yourself and then that's still your equity? And if you're borrowing against it, is it secured by their cash flow or is it secured by your underlying interest? It's questions like that, and those can get worked out, and those will get worked out. Much more with Howard Gutman in moments. To what extent the Josh Harris group is going to have to cater to the NFL remains to be seen. But when it comes to another form of catering, catering by Uptown is the DMV's number one catering service. It is a family business that prides itself on its signature dishes and flawless presentations. And Catering by Uptown goes beyond just food. Catering by Uptown offers personalized consultation and event planning assistance that are outstanding, including venue coordination, custom catering menu selection from over a 1,000 delicious dish selections, and a day of event coordinator who will make sure that everything runs smoothly. From putting together and executing a menu, to picking linens, to selecting an excellent florist, Catering by Uptown is committed to meeting your needs and exceeding your expectations. Whether you're having a wedding or a corporate event, an intimate gathering, or a gala, Catering by Uptown is the way to go. Visit CateringByUptown.com and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Check out the reviews, nearly 500 reviews, averaging 4.6 out of 5 stars. Visit CateringByUptown.com. That's CateringByUptown.com. And make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. More now on what exactly is going on in the sale of the commanders to the Josh Harris Group as we're talking with Howard Gutman, the former United States ambassador to Belgium and a man who is very familiar with the inner workings of this purchase. So as we await for the sale of the team to be finalized, 
There's nothing that the Harris Group can be doing in terms of commander's business operations, the team's quest for a new stadium, etc.? That's probably the most important rule, which makes a lot of sense from the league. Um, we don't know what you'll find. We don't know what will come out. But, um, but they recognize one owner at a time, and um, there, is, there can be no, let's say, for example, everyone expected them to get there, so, um, so they said, you know, we'd like to extend Cameron Curl, um, and he wants to get done now. We can't wait those two months. Go do it. Uh, and so Martin then extends Cameron Curl, and for some reason this sale unravels. And Dan Snyder says, I don't want an extended Cameron Curl. Uh, what do we do then? So there can only be one per, one ownership group in charge, and that's the ownership group until uh, until the sale closes. It's just like if you're a buyer of a house. Until it closes, you start renovations on someone else's house. It could be a real problem <laughs> yeah. uh, b- before the closing. One of the more notable items to pop up in recent weeks was this report from ESPN on May 16th. Uh, The report was based on a confidential Josh Harris Group prospectus that ESPN obtained. And the prospectus paints quite the rosy picture of life for the commanders in a post-sale world. Uh, What'd you make of that report? We're talking about leading fund. So Apollo raises massive funds. They go on a fundraising every, I don't know, three years they raise the new round, and you have a deck. And the deck, while as preventing you against having securities problems by having false statements, the deck points out what expectations could be. Um, but it's different than if you were having a, uh, a hard analysis of what they are. So I think the most important thing isn't isn't the conclusions, it's what vehicle it was in. And it's a vehicle that's looking at trying to sell an investment. Again, not lying, not committing fraud, but trying to get people to invest in it so you put your best foot forward. I think that picture was the best foot forward for our franchise. Now, we also, as fans, would hope it's a realistic foot forward where we have a stadium, um, you know, that is... And we have renovations to, in the meantime, to FedEx. And we we have a couple of Super Bowls and we have rocking, you know, rocking uh, stadium as opposed to watching Philadelphia fans buy seats and take over our games. Uh, but it's still, it really is a deck, a statement in the deck in a, in a sales pitch that it was uh, anybody trying to really come to grips um, with what is most likely to happen. The talk of a new stadium for the Commanders has very much been reignited by the sale of the team. Uh, do you have a feel for the most likely location of the team's next stadium in terms of Washington, D.C., Maryland, or Virginia? I don't think anyone has a feel um, in that. I don't think if you ask Bowser, you know, Yunkin or Moore, um, they could t- tell you, uh, here's what we're going to get through. This is this is politics. This is hurting cats. This is getting a debt ceiling uh, bill through. Um, it'll end up getting done. Just the, the who, what, and where is going to take some time to get there. Um, so I don't think there's any, I don't think, I disagree with anyone who thinks as a condition of buying this team, this group had figured out all the answers. They knew the questions, but they're too good a business group to, to prejudge the answers. They're going to judge the answers after they do intensive work on the stadium, after they do intensive work on the brand, after they do intensive work on on the management of the team, if they do intensive work on 
on the general management of the team after you know and after they let those people do intensive work on who should play safety and do we need to sign a new linebacker yeah so you may have just answered this question but when it comes to the name the brand uh do you think that josh harris already has an idea of what he's going to do with that name or do you think that harris truly doesn't know what he's going to do with the name I think he knows the process he's going to do to try to figure it out. He's going to do the smartest business process. It's it's not about I you know it's not about like naming your child. We say I always love the name Esmeralda, um, and you don't think about the, the pros and the cons and and what might ha- what might happen about Esmeralda. Um, this is. What makes sense to a fan base? What's permitted by the league? What makes sense to the patent office? Um, uh, is a lot of issues, and they can't get in there yet. They're not the owners to to even work on that due diligence. So um, it's not the way they might name their daughter and naming the brand. This is running a business, um, and it, but it's running a business that isn't just about the bottom line of profit. It's running a business for which their caretakers for a fan base that matters to them dearly. Well, the Washington Esmeraldas. Perhaps you just stumbled into something that could work. We'll see. Uh, This is kind of a logistical thing, and I ask this knowing that Josh Harris and the number two person in the Harris group, Mitchell Rails, are not the most public of people. But when the sale is approved, do you anticipate there being a big press conference or some type of major launch event? Uh, Well, I suspect there'll be some sort of event, but but neither Josh Harris nor Mitchell Rails are the type to say, give me that microphone and start fighting over it. Um, uh, I, I tell this story. Um, when it first came out that Mitch was thinking about investing, um, I wanted to see what his Wikipedia looked like. And so I looked up his Wikipedia on my mobile phone. And for the picture of Mitch Rails on Wikipedia, they had a picture of his brother, Steve Rails. <laughs> Wikipedia didn't even know what he looked like versus what his brother looks like. So these guys, you know, they are fabulous people. They are fabulous. They love the city. They love, um, they love the fan base. They realize this is bigger than them and they're fabulous businessmen. But they're not buying this team because they want to be someone. They're someone so that they can afford to buy this team. Um, but this isn't, this isn't making their career. They had their career. This is the giving back part. It's funny that you bring that up about Mitchell Rails. Uh, NFL insider Albert Breer of the MMQB has been like raving about Rails. Uh, Breer via a tweet on May 13th, quote, One thing to know that I've gathered from other owners, Mitchell Rails is a very real figure here and has the financial wherewithal to be primary owner. Considering Rails' business acumen, that the NFL gets both he and Josh Harris in the fold is considered a big win, end quote. Uh, I take it that you're not surprised by that tweet. Yeah, but I, I don't think that really hits it. The thing that misses is what Mitch is fabulous at as well is being a member of a team in the leadership group. So Danaher was Steve, his brother, and himself. Glenstone, the finest museum, that's his wife, Emily, um, who has as much say or, and Mitch collaborating. Mitch has tons of respect for Mark Ein. I'm sure Mitch has tons of respect for Magic Johnson. So these are guys who know they don't have all the answers. They know good processes. Among that whole group of 20, nobody has a clue who should play linebacker. They're going to find the guy who's the smartest guy at telling them who should play linebacker. They're going to empower him. They're going to do it together. So they're going to be on the same page because they understand what makes 
winning franchises, and they understand how important it is to play together. I don't suspect Josh Harris is the guy to say, I don't want to hear from you, and Mitch Rails isn't the guy who would ever say, I don't listen. These are guys who speak last in a room, uh, not first, after they've got people they respect um, who they who share the view, you know, who share their views and their insights. Um, so I think the most successful thing isn't that either one could be a great owner. I think as a team, they've put together people that they respect, that they can work with, and people who understand the, the strengths and talents of the others. The number of limited partners in the Josh Harris group, is that number evolving or is that number set? Um, it, well, it depends on the vetting. <laughs> um, okay. I don't know exactly what happens with all the vetting. You could find... You could find, look, I know people who got nominated for ambassadorships who couldn't pass the State Department vetting and then bought sports teams and passed their vetting. That's a real story. And we, we don't get into names, but that's a real story. But so you won't know what what is sensitive for the league, what the other owners say. Um, I don't think, I think there are a number of owners today, existing owners, who couldn't pass the vetting process to buy a team today. Huh. Um, they're lucky. They're lucky. They're owners, um, but we know some of the blemishes on some of their histories, and that would probably knock them out. Um, so we don't know exactly. People could have financial misfortunes. They could have problems in the vetting. They could have family issues. They could have health issues. Life is not static. Um, but you're not going to see major changes, and it's not going to be anything that threatens the group. If someone put in seventy-five million dollars now. Al, once again, to me and you, $75 million is a pretty good chunk of change. But someone putting $75 million, if they had to drop out, that, that interest could be made up. Um, but there, but do I believe it has to be set in stone like this before we've seen the vetting process, before it's closed? Or even after it closed, there could be someone um, who, you know, besides they're buying uh, another team. Jeff Bezos calls them up and they sell their minority interest. So this isn't static, but I don't think there's any issue that this group will be the group. Final question. Uh, you come from a world in which leverage is always a big deal. Uh, who has the most leverage in a negotiation or interaction? So regarding the Josh Harris group and the NFL trying to work through these financial structure issues, which side has the most leverage? On the one hand, you can say that the Harris group is trying to enter into the oh-so-exclusive and lucrative club that is NFL ownership. And so that would suggest that the NFL has the leverage. But on the other hand, you could say that the NFL is desperate to rid itself of Dan Snyder and that there actually did not end up being as many official bidders for the commanders as perhaps had been expected. And so if you subscribe to that line of thinking, you could suggest that the Harris group has the leverage. Uh, in the give and take with this financial structure stuff, which side has to give more? The, 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 the Harris group is not going to walk away because they have to restructure something. The NFL can say, we want this done, and they're not going to, and the Harris group will not say that's a deal break. Whatever the NFL needs done to meet their rules or they think needs to make their rules, the Harris group will make happen. Uh, so this is, this, when you're dealing with the NFL, it's a little bit like, you know, the mob, there really is not a no, it's just a, how do you want me to put the yes? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line. A great exit line uh, from the great Howard Gutman, who has an excellent grasp of all of this. Uh, Ambassador, always appreciate your time so much. Thank you for your uh, knowledge and insight and all the best to you. All the best, Al. Take good care. 
All right. Howard Gutman, the former United States ambassador to Belgium. He is very well informed on and very familiar with the Josh Harris group and the uh, machinations of its purchasing of the commanders. Hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Howard. Uh, If you did, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast. Uh, You want Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you want Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review doesn't have to be long. Can't be just a sentence or two, but the ratings and the reviews help out the podcast a lot. And uh, I thank you very much for doing them. They are appreciated. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, the Nationals, unfortunately, remain without a series sweep since August 2021. Uh, The Nats have not authored a sweep of a series, any series, since August 2021. Uh, The Nats on August 17th and 18th, 2021, swept a two-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays at Nationals Park. The Nats haven't swept a three-game series since June 2021 and haven't swept a road series of at least three games since August 2019. However, the Nats over the weekend did win a series. Uh, They won two or three games at the lowly (laughs) Kansas City Royals, who have the second worst record in the majors, 16 and 38. If you watch this series, I mean, the Royals really are bad, but whatever. Uh, The Nats don't have to apologize for beating anyone this season. Friday night, a 12-10 win in a game in which the Nats had an eight-run six in a game in which the Nats and the Royals combined for 22 runs, 28 hits, and 14 walks. Uh, Saturday, a 4-2 win in a game in which the Nats overcame a 2-0 six-inning deficit with a four-run six and one despite going just a two for 15 with runners in scoring position. Uh, but Sunday afternoon, a 3-2 walk-off loss in a game in which the Nats blew a 2-0 seventh-inning lead. The Nats now are 23 and 30. Sunday was maybe the ultimate test of how the Nats fan is approaching this season. If you are a Nats fan taking a big picture view of the team's season, given the rebuild, uh, then Sunday was a really good day with starting pitcher Mackenzie Gore having an excellent outing and the Nats promoting their top prospect, outfielder James Wood, to double-A Harrisburg. But if you're a Nats fan very much into the outcomes of the team's games this season, Uh, then Sunday was rather rough. Uh, Nats manager Davey Martinez in this game on Sunday afternoon used just one reliever, Chad Cool, and he allowed two runs, one earned in one and two-thirds innings. Uh, Cool came into the game to begin the bottom of the eighth 
with the Nats nursing a 2-1 lead. He, to the first batter he faced, gave up a leadoff game-tying home run by Edward Olivares on a bond to left field to tie the game at two. The homer would have projected 452 feet per stat cast. Uh, and Cool in the bottom of the ninth allowed an unearned run on a one-out fielding error by first baseman Dominic Smith and a two-out walk-off RBI single by Michael Massey to right field right in front of right fielder Lane Thomas, who did not dive for the ball. And the result was a 3-2 Royals win. Uh, the error by Dominic Smith was a killer. It came on a one-out grounder by MJ Melendez as Smith allowed the grounder to go right between his legs. What was interesting was that Melendez stumbled in rounding first base, but Lane Thomas overran the ball in right field, and so Melendez ended up being safe at second base. Uh, Some bad defense by the Nats in that bottom of the ninth inning. And how about this? Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday, uh, rather critical of Lane Thomas for him not diving to try to catch that Michael Massey walk-off single. Take a listen. That last last play there, it's a do-or-die play. You can't let that ball bounce in front of you like that. You got to try to come catch it. If it gets by you, it's by you, and the game's over anyway. Do you think his Lane's thought process was knock it down and maybe there's a play at the plate still? I I thought he maybe thought he could throw the guy out, but, I mean, you you just got to come get the ball. Yes, you do. Uh, And I'm with Davey Martinez on that. As for Dominic Smith, so he on Sunday afternoon as an at starting first baseman and number six batter went two for three with two singles and a walk. But that error loomed large and was especially unfortunate given that Smith is a good defensive first baseman. Smith entered Sunday with plus one defensive run saved at first base for this 2023 regular season. But the Nats bullpen is in a rough way right now. That 12-10 win at the Royals on Friday night, three Nats relievers officially combined to allow four runs in two and two-thirds innings on six hits, a walk, and a wild pitch. This as four Nats relievers were unavailable for this game. Hunter Harvey, Kyle Finnegan, Andres Machado, and Thaddeus Ward. Uh, Erasmo Ramirez on Friday night, a brutal outing. He officially allowed two runs without recording it out. He entered the game in the bottom of the seventh with the bases loaded, went out, and the Nats holding a 9-3 lead, and he did not retire any of the three batters he faced. He, to the first batter he faced, gave up a first pitch, went out, two-run double by Salvador Perez down the left field line to cut the Nats' lead to 9-5, and Ramirez then gave up a one-out three-run homer by Bobby Witt Jr. to left center field to cut the Nats' lead to 9-8, despite Witt having been down to the count of 1.12, and Ramirez then gave up a one-out single by MJ Melendez to center field. Uh, Carl Edwards Jr. officially allowed two runs in one inning, and then Chad Cool uh, actually officially tossed one and two-thirds scoreless innings with two strikeouts. Now, the Nats' bullpen in the 4-2 win at the Royals on Saturday was great. Uh, four Nats relievers combined for five scoreless innings with six strikeouts. Uh, Mason Thompson, a perfect bottom of the fifth and a scoreless bottom of the sixth. And he did all of this on a total of just 19 pitches. Uh, Carl Edwards Jr., scoreless bottom of the seventh, despite giving up a walk and a single. Hunter Harvey, scoreless bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts. Kyle Finnegan, scoreless bottom of the ninth with two strikeouts. But then on Sunday afternoon, Davey Martinez stayed away from Harvey Finnegan and Edwards. And, you know, in fairness to Davey, each of those three relievers has been throwing a lot lately. Uh, But Davey stuck with Chad Cool for the eighth and ninth innings. And uh, the result was not good, man. Okay. The result was not cool uh, with Chad Cool out there. It is so tricky with relievers because We don't know what Davey was told prior to the game. Like, we don't know if Hunter Harvey and or Kyle Finnegan and or Carl Edwards Jr. told Davey Martinez before this game on Sunday afternoon, yeah, man, uh, I'm not good to pitch today. You know, we don't know that. 
Um, and each guy, like I said, has been pitching quite a bit lately. But it was tough in a close game like this to have a guy who has been demoted from the rotation to the bullpen, Chad Cool, uh, being asked to pitch two innings to close out this game. And things did not go so well. Uh, and the shame of what happened on Sunday afternoon is that the Nats did not win a game in which Mackenzie Gore was awesome. Uh, Gore, in this 3-2 walk-off loss at the Royals on Sunday afternoon, allowed one run in seven innings with 11 strikeouts versus one walk. Uh, he gave up just three hits, a homer, a double, and a single. And he threw a lot of strikes, 106 pitches, 75 strikes, versus just 31 balls. Uh, Gore's fastball was on point. The only real boo-boo for Mackenzie Gore in this game, bottom of the seventh, the one-out solo homer by MJ Melendez to left center field to cut the Nats' lead to 2-1. The homer did go a projected 417 feet for StatCast, but otherwise, Gore was tremendous. Here was David Martinez during his post-game session with reporters on Sunday on Mackenzie Gore. That was a great start for him. I mean, uh, we got to keep him right there, though. But, you know, once again, I talk about him attacking the zone down with his fastball. Uh, everything plays off the ball down. He threw the ball down really well today. Um, and he was tough. So, I mean, uh, you know, great outing by him. You know, it stinks that he couldn't get the, you know, couldn't get the win there. But he's got to come back in five days and, and do it again. Yes, he does. Uh, you know, Mackenzie Gore had not been so good in each of his previous three starts. Uh, Gore on Sunday afternoon had his best start since actually another walk-off loss for the Nats, uh, the 8-7 walk-off loss at the Arizona Diamondbacks on May 6th. Uh, Gore in that game, two runs in six innings with nine strikeouts versus one walk. Uh, Mackenzie Gore now for this regular season, 11 starts, ERA of 357, a uh, whip of 141. That's actually not so good, but also a strikeouts per nine innings of 11.48. That is quite good. Uh, the Nats starting pitching in the first two games of this series at the Royals uh, was not so good. Uh, Patrick Corbin in that 12-10 win on Friday night, six runs in six into third innings. Now, he allowed three runs in six innings, but he then, and what ended up being a five-run seventh for the Royals, was charged with three runs as he began the bottom of the seventh by giving up back-to-back singles and issuing a walk before recording it out. And all three of those runners ended up scoring off reliever Erasmo Ramirez. Corbin, for the game, gave up seven hits, a homer, two doubles, and four singles. He issued four walks. He did record six strikeouts. He threw 108 pitches, 66 strikes, versus 42 balls. And Josiah Gray, he in that 4-2 win at the Royals on Saturday, lasted for just four innings. This was a disappointing outing for Gray. Uh, he, over the four innings, allowed two runs through 91 pitches, 57 strikes versus 34 balls. It's not like he got tattooed, but he was certainly uh, not pitch efficient. I mean, again, 91 pitches over four innings. He gave up four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles. He issued three walks and a run-scoring wild pitch. He recorded four strikeouts. Uh, odd series for the Nats hitting uh, the Nats in Game 1 scored 12 runs. That was excellent. But the Nats over Games 2 and 3 totaled a mere 6 runs. So the Nats, over the first two games of this series, had the two big 6 innings. Friday night at 8 runs 6. Saturday, a 4 runs 6. Uh, Luis Garcia on Friday night as the Nats starting second baseman and number 2 batter, 6 for 6. Uh, he joined Anthony Rendon as the only Nats players to go 6 for 6 in a regular season game since the franchise moved to Washington, D.C. in the 2004-2005 offseason, uh, Garcia went 6-for-6 six six with a two-run double, another double, and four singles, and five of the six hits were opposite field hits. I mean, what a performance by Luis Garcia on Friday night, but <laughs> then Garcia as an ad-starting second baseman and number two batter in each of the final two games of this series when it combined 0-for-10 
with three strikeouts. Uh, I do like what the Nats are getting from Corey Dickerson. Uh, he was an at starting left fielder and number five batter in each of the first two games of this series. Dickerson in the 12-10 win on Friday night, one for three with a three-run homer and a walk. Uh, he and the Nats, eight run six, had a full count three-run homer to right field for a 5-2 Nats lead. And Dickerson in the 4-2 win on Saturday, two for four with an RBI double and a single. Uh, he and that Nats, four run six, had an opposite field RBI double off the left center field warning track to cut the Nats deficit to 2-1, and uh, that hit was Dickerson's 1,000th career major league regular season hit. You know, Dickerson was on the 10-day entered list from April 2nd to May 15th due to a left calf strain, but he since coming off the 10-day I.L. has been productive. I was surprised that Corey Dickerson was not used as a pinch hitter in the latter innings of the loss on Sunday afternoon. Davey Martinez for that game on Sunday gave a number of Nats regulars the day off. Uh, Dickerson didn't play. He's not so much a regular, but C.J. Abrams was not the Nats starting shortstop. He had the day off. Capet Ruiz was not the Nats starting catcher. He had the day off. Jamer Candelario was not the Nats starting third baseman. He had the day off. And yet all of these guys were not utilized as pinch hitters, uh, despite the Nats offense not exactly thriving uh, in that 3-2 walk-off loss on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Also, another salute to Lane Thomas. Uh, He is the Nats starting right fielder and number one batter in each of the three games in this series. Only went a combined three for 14 with two walks, but each of the three hits was an extra base hit. Uh, Thomas in the 12-10 win on Friday night in the Nats. One run first, a leadoff homer on a bomb to left field, despite having been down to the count at one point. One, two, the homer winner projected 421 feet per stat cast. Uh, Thomas in the 4-2 win on Saturday in the top of the fifth, a one-out double to left field. And Thomas in the 3-2 walk-off loss on Sunday afternoon in the top of the first, a first pitch leadoff double to left field. Lane Thomas for this month of May, a batting average of 3.11, an on-base percentage of 3.60, and a slugging percentage of 6.13. He has been really good. And speaking of hitting, the Nats have promoted outfielder James Wood from High A Wilmington to Double A Harrisburg. Uh, the official announcement came on Sunday afternoon. The stock of James Wood is soaring right now. Wood is good. Uh, James Wood is one of the six players, including five prospects, who the Nats got in the mega trade of outfielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell to the San Diego Padres last August 2nd, what was 2022 MLB trade deadline day. Uh, here's all that you need to know. James Wood, at the time of that trade, was the number 88 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. James Wood right now is the number seven prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. Quite the ascension. Uh, He this season killed it for the high A Wilmington Blue Rocks. 42 games, 181 plate appearances, a batting average of 293, and on base percentage of 392, a slugging percentage of 580. Uh, This season is just Wood's age 20 season. He's built like an NFL tight end. Uh, Wood is listed as being 6'6 and 240 pounds. Uh, The Padres took Wood in the second round of the 2021 MLB draft out of IMG Academy in Florida. So note, he's not even a first round pick. He's a second round pick. And he is a local. Uh, Wood grew up in Maryland. His initial high school was St. John's College High School in Washington, D.C. Here was Davey Martinez during his pregame session with reporters on Sunday on James Wood getting promoted to double A. 
Yeah, he's he's done he's done well in you know a short period of time in in, in high A. He's done really well. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I try to keep track of these guys, and I, I think his OPS is over nine hundred. You know, um, he start his strikeout rate is is, is down a little bit. His uh, walk rate is up a little bit. So um, when he hits the ball, he hits it hard. You know, and he's walking. So uh, that's a good sign. You know, and and uh, so I you know I've, they feel, felt like you know this is the time to, to move him up and. Um, but he, he, he definitely deserved to, to get a shot to go up to double A. And um, it's all, for me, it's all about development for our young players. I mean, he's still really young and he's learned a lot. Um, I'd like to see him play, you know, all three outfield positions because um, you never know what the need will be here when he gets here. So uh, hopefully you know, he'll go down there and play, uh, play all three. But um, he's going to be a good one. You know, he really is. And he's, and he's learning a lot and he's getting better. So here's the deal. High-level prospects who are legit almost always get called up to the majors sooner rather than later. This has happened with plenty of highly touted Nats prospects. Uh, Outfielder Bryce Harper in 2012, third baseman Anthony Rendon in 2013, outfielder Victor Robles in 2017, outfielder Juan Soto in 2018. Uh, The expectation with James Wood had been that he maybe possibly could be called up to the majors at some point in the 2024 season. Well, Uh, We now are on James Wood watch for this season. It is entirely possible that he'll get called up to the majors this season. Uh, Not necessarily likely, but possible. And it is very exciting to think about what the Nats might have in this guy, a potential franchise outfielder. Uh, Next up for the Nats, a three-game series at the National League West-leading Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, Game one, Monday night at 9-10. Trevor Williams will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Game two, Tuesday night at 10-10. Jake Irvin will be the Nats' starting pitcher. And game three, Wednesday afternoon at 4-10. Patrick Corbin will be the Nats' starting pitcher. So the Orioles on Sunday afternoon concluded a brutal stretch of 22 consecutive games against teams that at the start of the stretch had winning records. There was a suspicion, dare I say fear, that this stretch was going to expose the O's. Uh, Well, the O's over these 22 games ended up going 13 and 9. Not bad. Uh, although the O's over the weekend uh, did lose two or three games against the American League West leading Texas Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Friday night, a 12-2 loss. Uh, that was ugly. Uh, Saturday, a 5-3 loss. But Sunday afternoon, a 3-2 win as the O's, Joe Angel, were back in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. That's right, Joe. The win column. Uh, the O's now are 34-19, and 19, a half game ahead of the Rangers for the second-best record in the majors. Uh, nice job by starting pitcher Kyle Bradish on Sunday afternoon. He was good for a third time in four starts. Bradish in this 3-2 win over the Rangers, one run in six and two-thirds innings. He gave up just four hits, a double and three singles. He issued one walk. He recorded four strikeouts. He threw 85 pitches, 56 strikes versus 29 balls. Bradish was coming off a rough outing, the 6-5, 10-inning loss at the New York Yankees this past Tuesday night. Bradish in that game, four runs in five innings. But Kyle Bradish for this month of May ended up having the following stats, five starts, 29 and a third innings, ERA of 276, a whip of 102. Uh, Also having a good start in this series against the Rangers was Dean Kramer, who was at least solid for a fifth 
consecutive start. Uh, Kramer in the 5-3 loss on Saturday, three runs in six into third innings. He gave up five hits, a double, and four singles. He issued two walks. He recorded five strikeouts. He threw a lot of strikes, 97 pitches, 63 strikes versus 34 balls. And Dean Kramer in this month of May, five starts, 29 and a third innings. ERA at 245, a whip of 130. Love the improvement that we're seeing from Kyle Bradish and Dean Kramer. But uh, then there is what is happening with Grayson Rodriguez, who is no longer on the major league roster. Uh, Gray Rod in game one of this series got ripped for a third time in five starts and then got sent back to AAA Norfolk. Uh, Rodriguez in that 12-2 loss to the Rangers on Friday night, nine runs, eight earned in three into third innings. He gave up six hits, three homers, a triple, and two singles. He issued three walks. He did record six strikeouts. He threw 83 pitches, 49 strikes versus 34 balls. Uh, Grayson Rodriguez at the major league level in this 2023 regular season, 10 starts, an ERA of 735, a whip of 172. Uh, Those numbers, of course, are brutal. And the O's on Saturday morning announced that they had optioned Rodriguez to AAA Norfolk. Uh, I am not a fan of shuffling guys, especially highly touted guys between AAA and the majors, but the pitcher who I just talked about, Dean Kramer, is an example of a promising pitcher who can come out of being demoted to AAA all right. Uh, Kramer in the 2021 regular season at the major league level, 13 starts, 53 and two-thirds innings, an ERA of 7.55. The O's during that 2021 regular season twice demoted Kramer to AAA Norfolk, but Kramer in the 2022 regular season, a lot better. Yet the major league level appeared in 22 games with 21 starts. He totaled 125 at a third innings, and he registered an ERA of 323. Keep this in mind with Grayson Rodriguez. He was not supposed to be in the majors right now, not off his exhibition season. The O's on April 5th as the corresponding roster move to placing Kyle Bradish on the 15-day injured list with a right foot contusion recalled Grayson Rodriguez from AAA Norfolk. Now, yes, uh, he was viewed as a big-time prospect. Rodriguez, at the time of being called up to the majors per MLB pipeline, was the number seven prospect in baseball and the number two pitching prospect in baseball. But the O's on March 27th had optioned Rodriguez to AAA Norfolk off him having had a terrible exhibition season. So hopefully this demotion will do Grayson Rodriguez, will do Gray Rod uh, some good. But, you know, the O's now, as a contending team, as opposed to a rebuilding team, are not going to have a guy like Grayson Rodriguez take his lumps at the major league level. Like the O's are trying to win this season. And so if a guy like Grayrod, as highly touted as he is, has an ERA over seven, uh, then yeah, uh, I can understand the O's sending him to AAA Norfolk. Uh, While we're talking Orioles starting pitching, bad news regarding John Means. Uh, O's executive vice president and general manager Mike Elias in a session with reporters on Friday revealed that Means has strained the scapula region in his upper back while performing rehab work in his comeback from Tommy John surgery. Uh, Means underwent the Tommy John surgery on his left elbow on April 27, 2022. The hope was that John Means would pitch at the major league level this season. Uh, But now there are no guarantees of that. Uh, Boy, you know, the O's already are good. You think about what a healthy John Means could mean to the O's. uh, But him being back at the major league level this season now is in at least some doubt. Uh, John Means for the 2021 regular season, quite good. 146 in two-thirds innings over 26 starts, an ERA of 362. 
Uh, Austin Hayes had a big series in the O's losing two or three games to the Rangers. Uh, Hayes was the Orioles starting left fielder in each of the three games in the series. He, over the three games, would have combined six for 11 with a solo homer, a triple, a double, two RBI singles, another single, and a walk. Uh, Hayes in the 12-2 loss on Friday night as the Orioles' number six batter, two for four with a double and a single. Hayes in the 5-3 loss on Saturday as the Orioles' number three batter, one for three with a solo homer and a walk. And Hayes in the 3-2 win on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles' number three batter, three for four with a triple and two RBI singles, one of which was a tie-breaking RBI single in the bottom of the eighth for a 3-2 Orioles lead. Uh, Austin Hayes for this regular season is number one among all qualified Orioles players in OPS at 887. This was O's manager, Brandon Hyde, during his post-game press conference on Sunday afternoon on Austin Hayes. He is playing some great baseball right now. Uh, really good at bats. Um, you know, it's went off the wall early in the game, and and uh, like the way he's using the whole field right now, the way he plays defense is special, and uh, just taking great at bats for us right now. Yes, he is. Uh, also, Ramona Rios is back. Uh, the O's on Friday afternoon reinstated infielder Ramona Rios from the 10-day injured list, which he had been on since May 9th uh, due to a left hamstring strain. The corresponding roster move was the O's optioning one of their top prospects, infielder Joey Ortiz, to AAA Norfolk. Uh, a mixed series for the Orioles bullpen. We actually had an Orioles position player pitch in this series. Uh, left fielder Ryan McKenna, uh, he in that 12-2 loss to the Rangers on Friday night pitched the top of the ninth. Uh, he allowed two runs on a double and three singles, but the two actual relievers who the O's used in that game, Austin Voth and CNL Perez, uh, actually were pretty good. They combined to allow one run in four and two-thirds innings. So the 5-3 loss to the Rangers on Saturday, three Orioles relievers combined to allow two runs, one earned in two and two-thirds innings. Uh, Brian Baker had problems seeing the top of the seventh Phase four batters got just two outs. He came into the game with a runner on first, one out, and the O's down 2 nothing. He began his appearance by giving up a double and a two-run single and then issuing a wild pitch before recording the two outs. Uh, then Michael Givens in the top of the eighth was charged with an unearned run, which came via an error by the returning Keegan Aiken, who officially tossed one and a third scoreless innings at the O's on Saturday morning as the corresponding roster move to the Grayson Rodriguez demotion recalled Aiken from AAA Norfolk to which he was optioned on May 9th. And then in the 3-2 win over the Rangers on Sunday afternoon, three Orioles relievers combined to allow one run in two and a third innings. Yanir Cano in the top of the eighth face four batters got just two outs, including giving up a two-out RBI double by Corey Seager to tie the game at two. So, you know, Yanir Cano has looked uh, human here lately. Uh, it was bound to happen, I guess, but it's just as odd to see with how great he had been. Uh, Danny Coulomb faced one batter, got one out, and Felix Batista, what a performance by him. He tossed a perfect top of the ninth with three swinging strikeouts for the save. Batista now, for this regular season, ERA of 138, a strikeouts per nine innings of 18.35. 53 strikeouts over just 26 innings. That's absurd. Uh, next up for the O's, a three-game series against the Cleveland Guardians at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Game one, Monday afternoon at 1.05. Tyler Wells will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. Game two, Tuesday night at 7.05. Kyle Gibson will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And game three, Wednesday afternoon at 3.05. The Orioles' starting pitcher is to be announced.
And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. A Tuesday show, episode 583. We'll have plenty for you on the Commanders. Also, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. And that's on Monday night at 9-10 of game one of a three-game series at the Los Angeles Dodgers. The O's on Monday afternoon at 105 have game one of a three-game series against the Cleveland Guardians at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Have a great rest of your Memorial Day Monday. And I'll talk to you on Tuesday. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice.